Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for June 2017. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the critical care literature that caught our eye in the last month. And it's been an interesting month. We've had models of care, sepsis, long-term outcomes, you name it. Well, let's start with intensive care medicine where we've got the effects of restricting perioperative use of intravenous chloride on kidney injury in patients undergoing cardiac surgery, the LICRA pragmatic controlled trial. So far this year we've seen a number of trials on chloride restriction in critically ill patients and they haven't shown benefit. We have had SALT, the effect on critically ill patients in general of chloride restriction, hydrorrhea, the effect of chloride restriction on contrast-associated acute kidney injury in critically ill patients, Um, and these follow the split trial that showed no change in AKI, renal replacement therapy or mortality in a heterogeneous group of critically ill patients. Now we have Lycra, a pragmatic single-centre, open-label, four-period sequential trial investigating the effect of chloride restriction versus usual care on acute kidney injury in adult patients undergoing cardiac surgery over a two-year period. So what did they do? Period 1 was a chloride-rich perioperative fluid policy characterised by 0.9% saline and 4% albumin, as the colloid, In period two, they had chloride limited period characterized by Hartman's and 20% albumin as the crystalloid and colloid. Period three was another chloride limited period characterized by plasmolite and 20% albumin as crystalloid and colloid. And period four was the same strategy used as in period one. And and between each period, there was a washout period, etc., What did they find? So 1,300 patients met the criteria and were enrolled and 1,136 were analysed. At baseline they were similar, that is the four periods or cohorts were similar, with the exception that the chloride-rich group had the lower estimated GFR and a lower incidence of intraoperative vancomycin exposure due to a change in policy. The chloride-rich patients received more fluid intraoperatively, 3.3 versus 3.2 litres, and arguably 100 mils is nothing, but less postoperatively on day zero and day one, 1.4 versus 1.7 litres, again, 300 mils more. They received greater chloride load intraoperatively, a median of 4.36 versus 3.15 millimoles, and that was significant. And on day 0 and 1, 210 versus 173 millimoles. Again, statistically significant. Now, there was no difference in co-primary endpoints of peak delta serum creatinine within five post-operative days. It was 13 micromoles per litre for both. And proportion of patients meeting stage 2 or 3 kidney disease using K-Dargo criteria 10.8% in the chloride-rich group, 10.4% in the chloride-limited group. 
There was no difference after adjusting for pre-specified covariates or post-hoc sensitivity analyses, and there was no difference in acute kidney injury, renal replacement therapy, or ICU length of stay. There was an increase in hyperchloremia and acidemia in the chloride-rich group. So, this is another negative chloride restriction study, this time in the prevention of renal injury after cardiac surgery. It was unblinded, and the restrictive arm still received a fair bit of chloride, with hyperchloremia present in 60% of the chloride-restricted participants. So, either chloride restriction is not a benefit in this group, or they have the dose timing or the population wrong. However, this is the fourth negative study in the last 12 or so months, so it may well be that chloride restriction isn't what we thought it was. Let's stick with intraoperative-based interventions for ICU or non-ICU patients and go to JAMA surgery. And this is the Dexlerium writing group, so congratulations on a great name. Intraoperative infusion of dexmedetomidine for prevention of postoperative delirium and cognitive dysfunction in elderly patients undergoing major elective non-cardiac surgery. So this multi-sender, double-blind RCT investigated the effects of intraoperative dexmedetomidine, 0.5 mics per kilo per hour, on the entry to OR and continuing for two hours post-op, compared to placebo on the incidence of post-operative delirium using a daily CAM ICU until day five. They did this in over 70-year-old patients undergoing major non-cardiac elective surgery. They also examined the effect on cognitive function changes at three and six months. They report a sample size of 706 participants was calculated for 80% power to detect a 50% reduction in delirium from a baseline of 15%, and the study was stopped for futility after only 429 of the proposed 706 participants were enrolled. The two groups were well matched at baseline with a median age of 74 years, Post-operative delirium occurred in 11.8% in the DEX group compared to 11.4% in the placebo group, and that's a relative risk of 1.06. 95% confidence intervals of 0.79 to 1.41, a p-value of 0.77. And there was no difference in the severity of delirium. There was no significant difference in cognition at six months. And there was no difference in adverse events with the exception of more intraoperative bradycardia in the dexmedetomidine group. So, overall, intraoperative dexmedetomidine was not associated with differences in postoperative delirium or other secondary outcomes. This is not overly surprising, as delirium is multifactorial and complex. And it seems pretty unlikely that an intervention for the intraoperative period alone would resolve these issues. It is a well-designed and well-conducted study, and it does certainly provide valuable information about the incidence and outcomes of post-operative delirium in the non-critically ill, non-cardiac surgical population. And it certainly provides evidence that argues against the use of dexmedetomidine as a prophylactic agent. So while we're trying to stick to themes and we've done sort of acute kidney injury and delirium 
in the last two papers, let's put them together for acute kidney injury as a risk factor for delirium and coma during critical illness. And this was published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. So we know that acute kidney injury and acute brain dysfunction are associated with both short and long-term morbidity and mortality. Is it possible that AKI can contribute to brain dysfunction, that is delirium and coma? This study examined the relationship between AKI and cognitive dysfunction as a secondary analysis of the brain ICU study, bringing to light the risk factors and incidence of neuropsychological dysfunction in ICU survivors, cool acronym. This multi-center prospective cohort study of critically ill adults performed daily assessments of both kidney and neurological function. So what did they do and find? They analyzed 466 patients with acute respiratory failure and or shock, and that was cardiogenic or septic, and classified by Cadigo acute kidney injury stages. Baseline renal function was normal for most patients. The overall incidence of AKI during the 30 days after enrollment was 65%, with greater than 50% of patients having moderate to severe kidney injury. 10% received renal replacement therapy, and of these, 68% received their initial renal replacement therapy during the study period. 62% got continuous renal replacement therapy, or SLED, and 38% got intermittent hemodialysis. Delirium and coma's outcomes were assessed twice daily in ICU and then daily until discharge. 75% of patients experienced delirium at least once, 60% experienced coma at least once, 47% experienced both, and mental status was normal for 53% of the patient days. 32% uh, of the patient days had delirium and 15% were comatose. So, the association between acute kidney injury and delirium coma, AKI was present 37% of study days when patient had normal mental status, 50% of the days when the patient were delirious, and 65% of the days when they were comatose. After adjusting for demographic factors, non-renal organ failure, sepsis, previous days mental state and sedative exposure, AKI was a risk factor for both delirium and coma during non-renal replacement therapy days. Specifically, compared with no acute kidney injury, the odds of delirium increased in the settings of Cadigo stage 2 and 3, and the odds of coma increased in stage 2 and 3. Now, interestingly, renal replacement therapy attenuated this relationship this included the finding that AKI, as measured by peak serum creatinine, was a risk factor for delirium and coma in patients not receiving renal replacement therapy. So, putting it all together, this prospective cohort study reports an association between moderate to severe acute kidney injury and delirium and coma, a relationship that was modified by renal replacement therapy this seems to be a plausible finding, although it is a single-centre cohort study, so residual confounding and external validity are issues. However, it is interesting and raises the needs for future studies to explore mechanisms, validate findings, 
and test the relationship of modifying delirium and coma in acute kidney injury through the use of interventions such as renal replacement therapy. Great stuff. Okay, let's move on to the wonderful world of sepsis and start with a trial by the VAST group or a paper by the VAST group, the septic shock 3.0 definition and trials, a vasopressin and septic shock trial experience. So how will the new sepsis septic shock 3.0 definitions affect enrollment and management of sepsis RCTs? This study applies the new requirement for a lactate of 2 millimoles per litre or greater to the VAST trial. In VAST, patients were included if they met the criteria of sepsis plus hypotension, MAP less than 65 millimetres of mercury, plus norepinephrine of greater than 5 mics per minute for at least 6 hours after greater than 500 mils of fluid resuscitation. In this study, they retrospectively applied the septic shock 3.0 definition by dividing the cohort to lactate greater than 2 millimoles per litre or less than equal to 2 millimoles per litre and comparing 28-day and 90-day mortality rates. They report the new septic shock 3.0 definition decreased the vast sample from 778 to 375 patients. Patients with the septic shock 3.0 definition had 28 and 90 day mortality rates 10 to 12% higher than the overall vast mortality rates. The absolute risk reductions of vasopressin versus NORAD changed slightly. So the overall vast 28 day mortality rate absolute risk reduction decreased 3.9%, whereas the absolute risk reduction increased slightly for the less severe shock stratum. The relative risk reductions decreased much more for the whole vast cohort from 99 to 2.2%, but did not change much in the less severe septic shock stratum. There was a decrease in 28 and 90 day mortality rates in patients with vasopressin in the less severe stratum and a significantly lower 90 day mortality with vasopressin versus nor epinephrine. So overall, when the new septic shock 3.0 definition was applied to a previously collected sepsis RCT population, the effect was a large decrease in sample size, an increase in mortality, and no difference in mortality effect in the vasopressin versus nor epinephrine group. However, a significantly decreased mortality was observed in the vasopressin group in the low severity stratum, consistent with the post hoc analysis of the original VAST trial. If you recall, the group who were enrolled with a norepinephrine requirement less than 15 uh, on post hoc analysis had a reduced mortality. So this tells us that the new definition will affect sample size calculations and recruitment rates in future sepsis trials, and that's a really big deal. Let's stick with sepsis and go to a very controversial study, the hydrocortisone, vitamin C and thiamine for the treatment of severe sepsis and septic shock, a retrospective before and after study by Paul Marek in CHEST. Now we don't usually include retrospective before and after studies in this Journal Club podcast, but this analysis 
of a three-pronged novel sepsis treatment, vitamin C, thiamine, and a moderate dose hydrocortisone, has gained a lot of attention and generated a lot of debate about the intersection of social media and science. In this retrospective before and after study, in the after cohort, which was six months, 47 patients with severe sepsis or septic shock and a procalcitonin of greater than or equal to 2 nanograms per mil were treated with IV vitamin C, 1.5 grams every 6 hours, IV thiamine, 200 milligrams every 12 hours, and IV hydrocortisone, 50 milligrams every 6 hours. The before cohort was 47 patients from 7 months earlier, of whom 60% received hydrocortisone. The hospital mortality was 40.4% in the before group and 8.5% in the after group, with an odds ratio of adjusted odds ratio of 0.13. The duration of vasopressor support was reduced by two-thirds, and the need for renal replacement therapy decreased from 37% to 10%. Now, there are obvious limitations. Before and after studies cannot adjust for time or process-dependent confounders and therefore should be considered as pilot data. The first three patients in the after period were excluded. The reason and the outcomes are unclear. The evidence for the presence, duration, magnitude and importance of vitamin C and thiamine in, in critical illness is not well established. Also, the effect of replacement is not well described. That is, do you select those with low values or everyone? What about dose and duration? A three-pronged treatment is open to criticism regarding which component is effective. Baseline hospital mortality was high and the treatment effect large. In the past, these sort of effects have not been reproduced in larger RCTs. Finally, other studies, APC, vitamin D, insulin, growth hormone, steroids, have failed to validate single-centre positive results in larger studies. However, there has been a lot of interest in the result, and there are biological mechanisms that could explain an effect. Given this, a sensible course could be to use this as hypothesis-generating data and design observational studies, then, if warranted, interventional studies to investigate this novel treatment regime. Okay, moving away from sepsis, let's go to critical care medicine with Dale Needham's group, Core Domains for Clinical Research in Acute Respiratory Failure Survivors, an international modified Delphi consensus study. ICU survivorship continues to evolve as an area of clinical concern. With this has come a rapidly growing research agenda in an effort to define and improve outcomes after critical illness. However, rapid growth brings challenges, and a recent scoping review found over 250 unique measurement instruments were used between 1970 and 2013 to assess ICU survivor outcomes after ICU discharge. This makes comparison difficult with the added limit that many of these tools have not been well evaluated in our cohort. A core outcome set is a minimum collection of outcome measures reported in all studies within a specific field. This minimum standard ensures the most basic and crucial outcomes are consistently assessed in the same way to facilitate comparisons, meta-analyses, and prevent bias from selective outcome reporting. 
Importantly, it does not prevent investigators collecting additional data. To develop a core outcome set, there must first be consensus or on core domains defined as patient outcomes, health-related conditions or aspects of health that are essential to evaluate within a clinical field. This process focuses on what types of outcomes to measure before determining how to measure them. The objective of this consensus development process was to identify the core domains for clinical research evaluating the outcomes of survivors of acute respiratory failure, including ARDS, after hospital discharge using a rigorous consensus methodology and an international panel of relevant stakeholders. The panel identified and considered 27 domains and ended up with seven. These are 1. Physical function and symptoms, 2. Cognitive function and symptoms, 3. Mental health conditions and symptoms, 4. Survival, 5. Pulmonary function and symptoms, 6. Pain, 7. Muscle and or nerve function. There are a number of in interesting points. Members of the public were included on the panel and support for individual domains was similar across stakeholder groups, except financial impact on the patient, 78% of patients and caregivers cared about it and 38% of the stakeholder groups. Two, healthcare resource utilisation, 67% of patient and caregivers rated it compared to 40% of stakeholder groups. Survival, 94% of clinical researchers compared to only 50% of patients and caregivers. There were no social health domains, which may reflect an assumption that this is largely determined by physical, cognitive and mental health. Of note, satisfaction with life or personal enjoyment was rated as critical by 70% of all panel members, including 82% of patients and caregivers, but it was not selected. Health-related quality of life received strong support as a core domain, but many clinical researchers struggled to conceptualise this separate from its most well-known measurement instruments. So there are some interesting things there, particularly the issue about survivorship mattering more to clinical researchers than to patients and caregivers. Anyway, they're the domains. The next step is achieving consensus on what measurement instruments should be used to assess these core domains. So stay tuned. Okay, let's finish up with a controversial paper in critical care medicine. Well, the paper is not controversial, but it will generate a lot of discussion if our administrators get a hold of it and if we all have strong opinions about it. And that is, post-operative complications and outcomes associated with a transition to 24-7 intensivist management of cardiac surgery patients. What is better, an on-call or a 24-7 nighttime intensivist model? In 2012, we had a retrospective study that reported a benefit with nighttime intensivist in ICUs where a model of low-intensity daytime staffing was present. So while ICUs with a high intensity of daytime staffing did not benefit from nighttime intensivists, in both low and high intensity daytime staffing models, the presence of a nighttime resident conferred a mortality benefit. In 2000 and 
13, we had evidence that nighttime intensive staffing did not improve outcomes in a high-intensity closed ICU model. In this article in Critical Care Medicine, we have a before and after propensity-matched cohort study suggesting benefit from a nighttime intensivist model in a cardiac surgical ICU. So, what did they change from and to? Well, in 2013, this large cardiac surgical ICU in Edmonton, Canada, moved from a nighttime resident cover to 24-7 in-house intensivist cover, and they hypothesized this would reduce post-operative complications, resource utilization, and improve clinical outcomes. The analysis was as follows. They propensity-matched before and after design, so all patients over 18 years of age admitted to the cardiac thoracic or cardiac surgical ICU from the 1st of Jan 06 to the 31st of December 14 were eligible. And this ICU had a caseload of 114 hearts per month, that is about 30 per week. In the before model, it was a closed cardiac surgical ICU with one-to-one nursing, a team of three intensivists, and collaboration with surgeons, etc. The intensivists rounded during the day and were on call from 6 p.m. till 7 a.m. with physician residents providing night cover. Now, it's not explicitly stated if these physician residents were present during the were present during the day and what sort of training they had. In the after model, it was the same thing, but intensivists were in 24/7 and were first responders for everything. No residents at night. A propensity-matched analysis was performed due to temporal changes in case mix. So, 1,509 resident cohort patients were matched to 1,509 intensivist cohort patients and were generally well-matched at baseline. The resident cohort had longer durations of bypass and more intraoperative red cell transfusions. Go figure. The primary composite outcome of major post-operative complications was 26% in the resident model versus 19% in the intensivist model. Odds ratio 0.73, 95% confidence intervals 0.63 to 0.85, p less than 0.01. Now that was that major post-operative complication primary composite outcome was included myocardial infarct, stroke, AKI, nosocomial infection, reintubation, prolonged mechanical ventilation, GI hemorrhage, ischemia, delirium, cardiac arrest, reoperation. That's a pretty big mix of outcomes to have in a composite outcome. So specifically, the improvement was due to an improvement in lower rates of surgical site and other nosocomial infections like pneumonia and in cardiac arrest. The intensivist model was associated with a significant reduction in the average duration of mechanical ventilation from 25 to 19 hours. There were no significant differences observed in cardiothoracic ICU or 30-day mortality. And to evaluate if temporal improvements in care were responsible for observed improvements, a sensitivity analysis comparing the observed versus predicted complication rates was performed the 2014 primary composite outcome was significantly lower than predicted, 17 versus 23%. The intensivist model was associated with fewer cardiothoracic ICU readmissions, 5 versus 2%. 
and shorter average cardiothoracic ICU length of stay, four and a half versus 5.7 days compared to the resident model. There was no difference in hospital length of stay. Major post-operative complications were significantly reduced with the intensivist model compared to the resident model for patients less than 75 years of age and there was no difference in patients greater than 75 years of age. On the surface, this study reports a significant decrease in cardiac arrest, pneumonia, prolonged mechanical ventilation, surgical site infections and a reduced cardiothoracic ICU readmission and length of stay in the years after a 24-7 intensivist model was introduced compared to the years before when a resident nighttime model existed. Mortality did not change and hospital length of stay did not change. So how do you interpret that? Well, the effect of time is difficult to adjust for. We know that from other studies. This sort of temporal confounding cannot be truly addressed. What else did they change? How else did they improve their process of care? Secondly, what was the training and presence of the and presence of those resident physicians? Would the effect that we observed of improved outcomes uh, have been also generated by improved training and education of those residents in ICU? Finally, is the cost of nighttime intensivist cover? addressed or worth the reduction in length of stay. Fascinating stuff. It'll be interesting to see how this is debated. Well, that's it for Critique Journal Club, June 2017. Come to the website, have a look, go and read the papers yourself, look at other blogs. Otherwise, we'll see you in a month. Thanks. Thanks.